Welcome to the APM podcast. APM is the chartered body for the project profession. My name is Emma DeVita and I'm the editor of Project, APM's quarterly journal and your host. Today I'm speaking to Richard Noble, the leader of some truly awe-inspiring British extreme speed projects on land, at sea and in the air. These included bringing the land speed record back to Britain in 1983 when he drove his Thrust 2 car to 633 miles per hour. And 14 years later, he led the Thrust SCC team to achieve the first supersonic record at 763 miles per hour. He's also the man behind the Bloodhound project with the mission to reach 1,000 miles per hour on land and to inspire generations of new engineers and scientists through a pioneering educational program. He's joining us today to tell us a bit about what it takes to lead projects like this, why embracing risk makes for innovation and how to motivate teams. If you want to find out more, look out for his contribution to the forthcoming summer issue of APM's Project Journal and get a copy of his book, Take Risk, published by Evro. Richard, I just wanted to welcome you to our podcast. Thanks again for your time. It's lovely to meet you. Emma, this is going to be great fun. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> me, me too. Well, I, I think a good place to start would be for you to just um, give us a brief overview of a a couple of projects um, for, for listeners who might not be au fait with all your work um, and just a bit of background o- o- on you. I'd always wanted to do the world land speed record. That was uh, something that started with me from the age of six when I saw John Cobb going for the water speed record on Loch Ness. And, uh, and I wondered how I could do this. And I was lucky enough to be able to put together an organisation. We had no money at all. Mm. And I built a very simple jet car, which nearly bloody killed me. And then after that, uh, I met a brilliant engineer, John Aykroyd, and John and I then put together an organization uh, to build this land speed record car. And it was a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, the general sort of uh, higher, the establishment was dead against it and uh, we were fighting every sort of battle. But the wonderful thing was sponsorship. Sponsors, sponsors will put up money providing you develop um, good quality publicity for them. And that is great. So that means that you're actually outside the establishment system. Um, in other words, you're not taking, you're not getting your money from the city who tried to control everything. And, uh, and that way, that, that gives us great freedom. And eventually, of course, we, uh, we got the world land speed record at 633 miles an hour. The car actually achieved its design speed, which was terrific, which was 650 miles an hour. So that was, that was in 1983 with Thrust 2. That was 1983, two. Thrust 2, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I suddenly realised, my word, think what you could do. Basically, if you can uh, organise these little flat companies, you could take on anybody and anything. Um, it's a bit like, if you like, the SAS in the military, you know, very small organisation, but very, very highly motivated. And of course, if you go back to uh, to Maslow, in one of Maslow's books, right at the back, it says the crucial point was that he found from his experiences, and this, of course, is 1940, that uh, only 15% of people in uh, a large organisation ever get near to self-actualization levels. And self-actualization levels means that you're finding out who you actually are and what you can really do. And uh, so you have to join an organization which will give you that freedom and latitude. And that is the big motivator. And I suddenly realized this man's absolutely bloody brilliant. Wow. Um, And so uh, the next thing we wanted to do was to set up an aircraft company to uh, create a new uh, light training airplane. 
this was a fascinating experience because, of course, we were head right up against the hierarchical organisations of the CAA. Can you explain who the CAA is? Oh, Civil Aviation Authority. This is the, the uh, effectively the aviation police force. Yeah. Uh, they're there to make sure that you uh, that you're safe and you're not going to drop out of the sky and kill people. Yeah. And uh, it was absolutely fascinating because they could not cope with this. Uh, we also uh, were working with, or trying to work with, the Department of Trade and Industry, who were absolutely hopeless uh, because they, they couldn't conceive of actually creating a new all-metal aeroplane with a new aero engine and flying it within 13 months, which is what we did. Mm. Uh, they couldn't cope with this. They, they really couldn't. They, they thought there was some flaw or fraud or something. Um, and um, and all the way through these various projects we've done, which have been largely um, aeroplanes and land speed record cars, uh, basically we've we've had big big problems with the establishment, which is a terrible terrible shame. What can project professionals learn from the way you approach projects? Right. Well, the first thing of really is to um, forget everything you've learnt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, start off with a clean sheet of paper. And when you're doing a big project, like, uh, for instance, like Farnborough Aircraft, what you've got to do is effectively is to consider that you're going to walk through a large wood or a forest, let's call it a forest. You're going to go into this forest and you're hopefully going to come out the other side. But there are no paths. And so all every moment you've got to have your fingers on the Gantt chart pulse so you know exactly where you are. You realize that uh, you will make wrong turns from time to time, and you've got to be able to be very quick. But the crucial thing about the whole thing is speed. You've got to move very, very quickly, make your decisions very, very quickly. Now, we all know that, you know, most executive decisions are, um, if you're lucky, 50% are right. (laughs) Uh, But the important thing is making the decisions and keeping the organization pointed in in what you believe is the right direction. And from time to time, of course, you come up against a, a, a blank wall when something simply can't be done, and uh, you've got to find another way of going around it. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that uh, these organizations, providing you're running a flat organization, you're empowering people properly, not just giving them responsibility, but giving them responsibility with the appropriate authority. So they can fail the company if they, they wanted to. Um, this becomes really interesting because basically they will probably find the way out that you haven't got. Mm. In, in your book, Take Risk, uh, you are very critical of organisations saying that we're, and as a country, become far too risk adverse. But without the process and the um, making things essentially as safe and uh, secure, how, how do you how do you pull off a project that embraces risk because that brings innovative solutions but actually tie that to a process that keeps everyone safe or things on track or reassures the financial backers that things won't all go wrong in the end well let's start with the problem um the 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 problem the problem is the financial backers these guys don't take risk (laughs) not on our sort of levels and uh you know and they they should not be in the equation so what actually happens is that um, you come up against a particular problem. And the important thing is the culture. You see, we've been taking risks on a daily basis uh, for the last 40 years. And you quickly understand what risks can be taken and what risks should be avoided. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you simply have to take risk and you've got to be able to live with the consequences of it. 
So with the supersonic car, for instance, we had to have a car which was steered by its rear wheels, two enormous um, after-burning turbofan engines. Nobody ever built anything like this. And if we'd gone to the city for funds for this, I mean, we'd have been shown the doors uh, almost immediately. <laughs> so the risk-taking actually, funny enough, is a domestic thing. And what I always say to people is start taking risk now at home. Go and buy some extraordinary car. <laughs> go, go and buy, buy a house which you can't afford. Go and do this. Go and do that. And after a bit, every time you take risk, it opens up a completely new culture and a, and a completely new world that you, of course, would have been avoiding because you were playing the safe game. So you've got to start at home. And the wonderful thing about failure, and that's very important, is that you learn much more from failure than you ever would do from success. So a few failures in your CV are very important. So you've got to put failure behind you. So you imagine uh, driving the land speed record car back in 1980s. Uh, basically, you know, what do I do? Well, this thing's probably got a chance of killing me. So you put that behind you and you say, fine, <laughs> what we've got here is a very, very good team of people. It's, uh, that is basically our safety thing. Mm. And, uh, and basically you push on and eventually you get that. If you're taking high risk and you're giving people responsibility, true responsibility and autonomy, what do you have to have within those teams to ensure that that things do go okay. Two things, the right people mm. and, uh, and good communication. Yes. That's a crucial thing. Tell, tell me a bit more about the right people. Well, what generally happens with these projects is that we don't recruit. People just come. And uh, if, you're, if that happens, then basically you know that that person is probably very upset or very disaffected with, the, with his or her current job. Mm. And secondly, that uh, they, they want to innovate and they want to create and they want an opportunity. So you've got to provide them with the opportunity, <clears throat> which gets them quickly from where they are, which is basically submerged in a hierarchical culture, into um, a flat company culture. Mm. And to get them up uh, right to the top of Maslow's pyramid, the self-actualization, and generally it takes about three months. So somebody... Somewhere along the lines, uh, a new person is recruited and arrives and so on. And I take a look at them and I think, oh, my God, hang on a moment. Because <laughs> one of our rules in the organization is you must always recruit people who are better than you are. Yeah. Okay, mm. so the organization gets stronger. Mm. And then what happens is over a period of three months or so, that person will change out of all recognition. And suddenly you think, wow, I got that really wrong. This, this person is absolutely bloody amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and this is how it works. So it's, it's very much a culture thing. Do you have any advice around how to create a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, and, and how do you go s about selling a vision? Well, these projects basically are, are effectively single focus, like breaking the world land speed record or creating a new type of aeroplane. Um, and, uh, and, and basically that keeps life very simple because that's just what you are doing. Yeah. Um, uh, selling the concept is, of course, talking about uh, innovation and change. And people want innovation in this world, big time. We've got enormous problems because of the, the risk-averse um, society we live in. Can I ask you what kind of leader you are? 
Well, I'm, I'm not a controlling leader. leader. This is the important thing about it. You've got to actually, you're working with people. Not, they're not working for you. They're working, we're all working together. We're all in the same, in the same bowl of soup, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, I happen to be a, a director of the company and I've got to take responsibility for the entire show. And that is, uh, that makes me a bit different. And occasionally, just occasionally, I step in and say, hey, guys, we can't do that. That's where we're going way away from what we're trying to achieve. But um, very, very flexible. Our flagship conference, Powerworld Project, is back for 2022 on Thursday, the 9th of June at Park Plaza, London Riverbank. Hear from industry-leading speakers exploring topics such as leadership, sustainability and diversity. Network with project professionals and learn the key skills you need to thrive in your career. Visit apm.org.uk to book your place today. We look forward to seeing you there. I mean, I'd like to talk a bit about Bloodhound and the ability to just keep persevering in the face of... um... Well, I love these things. I I mean, it's so exciting. You see, the world has changed. um, And it's changed because of two things. One is because basically people are, are now beginning to accept the fact that they have to change. They really have to change. Can't go on doing the same thing. I mean, the country's in a terrible mess financially at the moment, as we know. And what you've got to do is you've got to innovate. And by, by innovation, of course, you're going to produce new products and services, um, which hi- which generate much, much hi- um, higher margins, which is, you know, the, the life. If you keep on doing the same old thing, then your margins just get decline and decline and decline, and, and eventually you'll lose the company. So you've got that. And then on the other side, you've got the uh, the new technology. Things like computational fluid dynamics uh, and and all the rest of it, and it's absolutely fascinating because you can start to apply this stuff to things that have never been done before, mm. and uh, you can really innovate. And providing you've got a team that's um, that is uh, prepared to join in and take risk, and they are taking an element of risk because uh, you know they're putting some of their uh, their life aside to actually do this. They understand the risk. They understand that it could fail. Um, but they're going to learn so much from it. And for instance, for, while we were doing the Bloodhound project, we worked extensively with the with the army, mm. the royal uh, the royal engineers. Mm. Now this was fantastic because basically there you have a, a died in the wall hierarchical organisation, mm. um, and they're giving us some of their people, groups of six, to come and work with us. And they they can't believe what's actually happening. They're being trusted. <laughs> they're yeah. not being told what to do. Yeah. And uh, the the engineers, uh, the, the army comes back afterwards. It's absolutely amazing. You've changed our people out of all recognition. They're suddenly taking responsibility and leadership. Because basically people are, are fundamentally very clever and fundamentally very honest. And with Bloodhound, what were the biggest lessons you learned from that? Because you were... Oh, my God. <laughs> keep away from the government. Oh, no. Um, I'm very, very proud of Bloodhound. Uh, it's a terrific achievement by a tremendous team of people. Mm. Um, basically, what happened was the Americans had decided they were going to take or, take our supersonic record, and obviously we got to defend this our, our position. So we set out to produce this thousand-mile-an-hour car, and of course everybody said, "Oh, it can't be done," and "Oh, what do you think you're doing?" and all this sort of thing. But one or two people thought, "Well, this is amazing." I mean, after all, this team did break the sound barrier, and nobody else has done that. 
And um, we got going, and uh, with the Ministry of Defence, uh, one director came up with an absolutely brilliant idea, which was to use the project as a, a stimulant for education. Yes, I'm curious to find out more, yeah. Uh, because we could we could make the whole project, uh, all the data on the project live, we could make it available to them. We're not concerned about IP issues or anything like that. Uh, we can just do this thing and share it. And it became enormous. I mean, we were doing 120,000 kids a year. The scale of this thing was, we were the biggest STEM program in Britain. It was it was a huge success. So certainly if the, that gives the gave the project real credibility. Unfortunately, our American arrival was killed in an air crash, which was just rotten luck. It's just very, very bad luck. And uh, we decided we'd keep the project going because it was such a creative project. And we had some sort of 300 companies working on it. And uh, we got the car built. But as uh, there were all sorts of enormous problems, like, for instance, um, these cars have to run on a special sort of surface, yes. desert surface. Mm. And the, the special surface that we've been using in America um, had been wrecked on by a leisure activity called Burning Man. Oh, the festival, yeah. Uh, 70,000 Americans mm. turn up and run, paint themselves different colours and <laughs> yeah. run around Starkers and things. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's great fun, but uh, it wrecks our desert. Yeah. And so we had to find another one. We found it in South Africa. And the South African people put in a thousand man years of work creating this track for us. Thousand man years. So they, they were literally on their hands and knees picking, clearing stones and rocks. Yeah, the, they cleared, yeah. cleared 16,000 tons of stones. We had 300 companies working on it. Um, our sponsorship that we'd raised was a total of 31 million. And on, that excluded all the companies who gave us bits and pieces and made bits and pieces for us. So this is a huge thing. And uh, as, of course, as the project gets nearer and nearer to uh, getting to a point where it runs, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Cash requirements, of course, gets bigger and bigger. These projects are actually very, very difficult to plan because of the levels of innovation. And um, so you've got to get bigger and bigger deals. And this means that your sponsors have to take greater and greater risk, not because of the project risk, but because you're asking for more and more money to actually do this. And uh, we were running into real difficulties. And then suddenly... Uh, a brilliant man, Li Shufu, who's the um, uh, chairman of the Geely Car Company, took a real interest in us, and he decided he was uh, he was going to sponsor us. So I was commuting back and forth to China, putting this terrific deal together, and he was a he's a great great man. And um, also at the same time, that wasn't enough for us to run the car in 2017, and we needed a bit more. And we'd taken the project to the city, and we put the car on uh, show, and 8,000 people came in two days to see it. We actually had to sort of put them in groups to get them through, because otherwise um, uh, the whole thing was getting too congested. And uh, they bought 60,000 quid's worth of merchandise. Oh, terrific, great, fine, you know. But was there going to be any sponsorship from that? No, because you're dealing actually with the city. The city doesn't take these sort of risks. It's, uh, it runs itself as a uh, select organization, and it doesn't do this sort of thing. But So I went to uh, the Chancellor, George Osborne, and said, I'm terribly sorry, George, we're going to lose this. I can't keep up the cash flow. Um, we've, done 30, we've done all this money so far, but the fundamental thing is I've got to keep this project moving fast and moving. And uh, I think it's got real values for the country, particularly the education side. And I wondered if you'd help. So uh, the Chancellor set up a program with Bayes to uh, review this whole thing. 
and find out whether this was of value to Britain. Fine. Great. Well, I, th I really welcome this because uh, what they were doing was going through every single aspect of the project, all the accounts, all the planning, everything. And it was great. They came up with very much the same sort of uh, figures as we did, which was great. And they then made us an offer, which was terrific. Oh, fantastic. Now, if we've got this offer and we've also got the Chinese deal, which is now uh, signed and they've made their first payment, uh, this is terrific. Now we're going to get this one. And um, I looked at all the requirements in the offer and uh, it's quite clear we could meet them all. Called a meeting with the civil servants, had a very odd meeting with them and uh, I just didn't know. None of us could uh, understand what the hell was going on. Yeah. And they just didn't talk to us again. It was simple as that. So that was it, wasn't it, for the... So that was it. Mm. I then had to go back to China and say, look, I'm terribly sorry the British government has defaulted on, uh, on this offer. We've met all the conditions. And I'd shared all the conditions with the Chinese, so they knew exactly the situation. Yeah. And uh, they decided they couldn't continue because they were going to have to carry the whole thing. And, uh, ah, yeah, it was absolutely bloody terrible. And all this was lost. All this time, people's money, mm. um, everything was just lost because of a, a failure to uh, uh, to um, sign off on a deal which they, they'd offered. Uh, it was just extraordinary. Uh, I kept going, I kept going, um, and 18 months later, the Secretary of State eventually signed off on it. But it was too late by then. We were into Brexit. There was no money, and, uh, you know, it was over. But what a waste. What an awful waste. Uh, what's happened to Bloodhound now? What did you do with it? Well, Bloodhound, I had to put Bloodhound into administration, otherwise yeah. we were going to go insolvent. Mm. And uh, and it was bought by a third party. He put up his own private money and got the car to South Africa, so it did run on the desert, which was good, and they got up to 628 miles an hour. The next step was to bring in the uh, the rocket motor, which is being developed by our friends in, uh, in, uh, in Norway, and uh, they just didn't make the next step. So the car is now sitting rather forlornly in a museum. And uh, talking to the Bloodhound people, they all think it's probably over. Right. Which is just an awful waste and a terrible shame. But it just shows how vulnerable these organisations are. What What's it like driving one of these incredible machines? Because you you have had a couple of nasty accidents. Oh, yes. I mean, this is, this is the, the name of the game, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, things do go wrong. But your safety... Uh, it depends on the team. It's about the team doing everything they're supposed to do and getting it right and communicating. The crucial thing is communicating. Something, if something's wrong, for God's sake, don't hide it. Say so, and so we can try and sort it out. What's it like being in the cockpit? You know, what, what's it actually like? I'd love to find out. Well, uh, you're part of a team and you're setting out to do something um, which is your share of the, the project, if you like. And so, therefore, you've got to develop as fast as you can and you've got to uh, be as professional and as efficient and, uh, and communicative as you possibly can. And uh, the thing about it is that uh, you put your fear behind you. So um, when you start off, you say, well, let's start the project off. You say, well, OK, we're going to do this. Fine. I've got to deliver for the rest of the team. So that's, that's what it's about. 
And uh, I mean, we got to a point where we could drive thrust to every day at over 600 miles an hour. I mean, it's incredibly reliable. <laughs> it was a fantastic team of people. You make it sound so and, ordinary, uh, you know. Just yeah, well, I mean, you know, if, if you're driving at 600 miles an hour every day, it's just um, it's just conventional. What's really. it like? What, just got to be very what, physically. What's it like being doing that? Oh, it, it it's another run, and uh, you're always totally absolutely focused on the numbers where you've got to be the speeds you've got to be and uh, the importance of not ever letting up because if you let your right foot off the accelerator a little even a little bit it'll affect the top speed big time so you're flat out right from the moment it goes uh, do you feel quite calm when you're doing it i guess you're my yeah i love it i love it yeah. i figure i'd love to think that i could go and drive it again today yeah brilliant um what so tell me uh, what are you working on right now well, we're working on uh, another project which we haven't launched yet, um, which is I'm finding very attractive because it's very, very difficult. The physics are absolutely extraordinary. And uh, the interesting thing about it is it can be done in Britain, which would be really great because that'll work really well with the education side. So uh, we're at our very early days at the moment now. The project is uh, very ill-formed, but we've got a fantastic team of people working on it. And I just hope that we're going to be able to deliver it and make it public very soon. Okay. When when do you hope to launch it? Uh, we hope to launch it sometime this year. Yeah. Have you got any last pieces of advice to project professionals about around the idea of risk, taking risk? Yeah. Please, please take risk. Try to create something which is different. You'll get a bigger margin for it, <laughs> and also change your life. Good. Do some, do risky things. <laughs> Even if it's only jumping out of airplanes with a parachute, do change your life. And, uh, you know, and then you then realise that there is an awful lot of excitement to be had from taking risk. Fantastic. What a brilliant way to end our podcast. I just want to say again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Emma. And keep, will you keep us posted about your, your project when it launches? So yeah, I will sure. do. Of course I will. Yeah. Thanks again to Richard for joining us and to you for listening to this episode of the APM podcast. Don't forget to look out for more episodes in this series or to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and more. We'd welcome you to get in touch with your comments, feedback and suggestions by emailing us at apmpodcast at thinkpublishing.co.uk. This podcast has been brought to you by APM, the chartered body for the project profession. For more information on APM, visit apm.org.uk.